everybody. Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, founder of Majority. My guest today is Tim Nudd, creativity editor at AdAge. Tim started his career in the late 90s at AdWeek, initially as a copy editor, later as a writer. He would do that for a few years and then leave to become a freelance writer, uh, most notably for People Magazine. In 2010, Tim returned to AdWeek as creative editor, and he would do that until 2018 when he joined the Clio Awards and launched Muse by Clio, a daily site and newsletter about creativity, as well as Tagline, a really wonderful podcast that goes deep into the making of iconic ad campaigns. In January of 2023, Tim took this new role as creativity editor at AdAge, and you know Tim's a believer that editorial coverage of advertising should be as colorful and playful and entertaining as the industry itself, and he delivers that. Uh, I've known his name since I was a young copywriter, hoping he'd cover my work. Over the last two decades, he's been a consistent force in our industry, elevating the work that defines our industry at its best, makes us jealous, and inspires the next generation. I was very happy to have this time to get to know him better. This is Tim Nutt and I talking to ourselves. Tim, the interviewer has become the interviewee. You must feel so disoriented right now. How are you just emotionally? Uh, I am disoriented. I'm usually asking the questions, but you know, I, I feel like we share a few things in common, which is adver- advertising podcasts. If advertising is a small community, then advertising podcasters is an even smaller community. So, you know, uh, it's, it's actually a joy to be on your show because I've listened to so many of your episodes. So thank you for having me on. We are uh, a rare breed who enjoys a very specific thing that most people hate and try to avoid. And we just love <laughs> it and are passionate about it. Right. Um, and listen, unlike you, I'm going to ask some unfair questions. For example, first question, Tim, do you remember that time 13 years ago, I was working at that agency and our PR person sent you that one campaign I worked on and you didn't cover it. What the fuck, man? <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Uh, listen, um, it's the email and pitching is, is I'm sure we'll probably talk about this, but that's, yeah, that's the bane of my existence, but you know, it's, it's, it's what you got to go through to find the good work and write about the good work. So we are definitely going to spend more time on that topic. I just wonder though, that joke I just told at a, at an industry event, can you expect one of those in event? Yeah, probably. It, it always circles back to, oh, either, oh, that that was great that you did cover this or, yeah, why didn't you cover that? Which, you know, I don't have a good answer for that because half the time I don't remember the pitch unless it was, you know, a campaign that really kind of broke through and got noticed. But um, yeah, those running into folks at, at, at events is always fun because I'm sort of trying to defend myself typically. Actual first question, Tim Nudd, where are you from and what did your parents do? So I'm actually from England. I was born north of London. I was born in a little town called St. Albans, kind of grew up in there. It's in, it's in Hertfordshire, just up the M1 from, from London. My dad was an electrical engineer. He grew up in West London. My mom was from North London. Uh, they met in London in the 60s. And she was, for most of my childhood, she was uh, a stay-at-home mom. She did also some real estate. She was a real estate agent for a while. She did some nannying work later on, like after I was in college and out of the house. Um, but yeah, we moved around a fair amount. So I was, I spent six years in England. Then my dad's job took us up to Scotland for about four years. And then we ended up in the Chicago area, which is where I went to high school, kind of Southwest suburbs. So 
I did eventually get my U.S. citizenship, and I obviously lost my English accent along the way. It was mm. You'll be surprised to learn the sixth graders in the public schools in suburban Chicago did not appreciate a kid speaking in an English accent. So I, I did lose that along the way. But if any advertising people ever accuse you of having pretentious creative taste, we can say it's just it's in your DNA. You're British. Yeah. Or if I, you know, <laughs> if, if I uh, cover more, more British, more UK work than, uh, than I should, uh, I'm probably just, yeah, I'm innately drawn to it. I, I think. Tell me about your, your first kind of juicy job as a reporter and your mindset going into that job. Well, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, even when I went to college, I thought I was going to be, you know, I was interested in political science and a few other things. And I got to, I got to school. I went to Wash U in St. Louis and I just got really into student newspaper. That's sort of what kind of drew me in and they didn't have a journalism school. So my, you know, all my training really early on came from just being on the job. I was initially a columnist, actually. I wrote like a humor column for the student paper before I did any reporting. I had a, a roommate uh, who was a close friend who basically did the same thing. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'd love to, I'd love to write comedy. So I started out writing comedy uh, in, in a weekly column for the paper. Left college, moved to New York. Just all I really knew was I want to be a journalist. And I literally just scoured the, the times for like journalism ads and uh, ended up at this really strange company called Petroleum Intelligence Weekly, which was uh, a weekly publisher of, of oil and gas industry newsletters. It was like an eight page fax that would primarily go to uh, Middle Eastern governments and, and big oil companies. These were the only subscribers, but it was. It was incredibly expensive to subscribe to. It was something like, you know, $30,000 a year for a weekly eight-page fax. <laughs> and so I had a, a, a really tiny audience for the first couple of years of my career. And the other thing about the oil and gas business is that it's incredibly boring to cover. At least it was for me. I, I still have a lot of friends from that first job, actually, who've stayed in that industry and seem to really like it. Um, but for me, it was like, well, I got to find something creative to write about. And so I'm just really quick, all, I'm, I'm imagining your audience was like seven Arab sheiks and four Texas oil tycoons who were basically <laughs> like Yosemite Sam. Basically, I mean, you're not far off. Honestly, oh. um, I don't know, even know if I should say this, but the guy we were eventually bought by, um, I think he was a Lebanese arms dealer. And he sort of and he came to the office once and he had a guy that spoke for him. And shook, he wouldn't even shake our hands. He had a guy shake our hands for, for him, which was really strange. So yeah, I had to, I had to get out of there. And I ended up at Adweek because I was sort of, you know, I was really into, into, you know, covering creativity in some form. And they were looking for, at the time, just copy editing help. I started as a copy editor there and very quickly shifted over to writing. And the first, uh, this is going to sound like a made-up story, but it's true. The very first campaign I wrote about at length for Adweek was the Guinness Surfer commercial in, in early 99. And I did a full-page story on that. I spoke to Walter Campbell and Tom Cardi about that. And um, I didn't realize at the time, obviously, that it was going to be sort of the campaign the, that the it most, was. The most artistic advertising film ever created. Youngins, check it out if you don't know exactly. it. Exactly. The number one on the list of best ads ever, according to the British public. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I sort of jumped right in, I guess, and and starting in 99 or so, um, and basically ever since I've been writing about the creative product in the industry. So yeah, it's been a fun ride. I think, you know, I, I, 
I love journalism growing up. And I think what, what can be true for journalists is true for comedy writers and sketch writers and stand-up comedians and basically anyone who has to face down an empty white page, um, which is some people are, are bring a militaristic approach to it and kind of can kind of have that Stephen King, like, Hey, I wait for inspiration to strike. And I know it's going to strike between 9am and 5pm Monday through Friday, um, like a professional. And, and then there's others of us that our fingers really can't start moving until, you know, until it's past the very last second. And I certainly, I've fallen into both categories, but I'm a procrastinator at heart. What, what category did you fall into as a young writer and, and are you different now? You know, I, I'm definitely a procrastinator. Um, you know, the, the good thing about covering this industry is that there's a never ending supply of, of creative product to write about, you know, and it becomes a test really of like architecture. Like how do I find that great thing that's within somewhere in that email stack? And so, you know, I don't have a problem. Unlike advertising writers who have to come up with a concept from scratch, I have something to write about. So uh, it's, you know, it's less, a, I don't really get writer's block or anything like that. Um, but I mean, certainly in college, I was, I was a procrastinator. And if I had to, if I were an advertising creative, which thankfully I'm not, um, I, I probably would wait until the last second. I'd be in over the weekend getting ready for the Monday pitch, as I'm sure most of the industry does. Yeah. Um, yeah. From my vantage point as an advertising veteran, you know, for me, there's actually, there's still quite a bit of mystery about the job of industry reporters. You know, we, we know that the industry and the industry press have this, you know, have a symbiotic relationship at, at a dinner party. How might you describe this relationship between the industry and the industry coverage to maybe someone who doesn't know anything about our industry. Yeah, well, you know, I think our job is to sort of both keep the industry honest, but also just sort of try to explain, you know, that what works, what's what's working well from a business perspective. And and you know, that takes a lot of forms. Obviously, we have at Ad Age, we have a lot of reporters covering the business side. Uh, my job is to you know, sort of figure out what's most exciting, where is the industry going creatively, and to try to get information out of people that that sort of helps in, illuminate that. You know, the, the biggest problem is that everyone in the industry, you know, kind of wants to talk up their own work, and, and you only find out later after they've left the agency, you know, what the problems were, and, and oh, that actually wasn't as great of a campaign as maybe I said it was at the time. So, you know, of course, uh, there's going to be a lot of that stuff. So we're, you're trying to kind of cut through the BS a lot of the time to really you know, try to figure out, you know, what is working in the industry? Where is the industry going? What types of creative approaches in this, you know, very quickly changing world are, are really breaking through with consumers? And it's difficult because you're covering the same people all the time. So, you know, it's not like if you're a general news reporter, you're dealing with different people every day. You know, it's more it's more like, you know, you have to develop these relationships and you have to you have a little bit of a push and pull, you know, because they do rely on us. Agencies and, and brands do rely on us to to help get their their news out. But at the same time, there's often things that they you know, they don't want out there. So that push and pull, I think, is what motivates most good reporters. You know, they like that push and pull. Otherwise, you know, it would, be, it would just be a PR job, you know? So, 
um, I've always been kind of drawn to that, and I've been lucky enough to cover and you know be in an industry that's not, you know, doesn't have like a, a surplus of of reporters covering it. You know, unlike a lot of creative industries which have thousands upon thousands of reporters, sort of all going after the same story. Like we're a pretty small small group. You know, there's only a handful of publications and reporters sort of doing this in in the U.S. So. Um, I'm lucky because I get, you know, that, that gives me access to a lot of the top people and be able to, you know, at least get access, even if it's, even if the uphill battle then becomes sort of getting the truth out of those people. Right. Listen, I, I, I face it, you know, doing this, this podcast where, you know, advertising people, we may sort of be in the business of media, but most of us aren't media trained and media savvy. And even in a format like this, um, it's always interesting. I'll just, you know, I ask you where you're from and what your parents do. And I, I start every podcast that way. And um, sometimes the answer will be like the person will just respond with their entire LinkedIn profile and every accomplishment. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll just go like, I promise you we're going to get there uh, uh-huh. if you could just eat. No. Uh, so I think we're, we're sort of naturally hardwired uh, to be propagandists. It's part of what makes us good at our jobs, I suppose. But uh, it can also make it annoying to try to have a genuine conversation with us um, without feeling yeah. like, like an agenda is leaking through. And, well, and on top of that, interviewing is a really difficult skill. I mean, interviewing, I was a terrible interviewer for the longest time because I was not really that comfortable. I'm sort of an introvert at heart anyway. And I, you know, I remember actually covering Surfer, like I'm calling AMV, like these guys I don't know. And I got to, you know, this was back when, you know, I was just barely out of college and you know, coming up with those questions and just sort of trying to develop trust in, in a, in an interview is like, it's really difficult, you know, and, yeah. and over the, over a course of, you know, many years, I've sort of gotten better at it, but I still marvel at the people for whom it comes kind of naturally. Uh, I've never, you know, I, I wouldn't say that the interviewing part of it is, is my skill. I mean, my, you know, my podcast, which I had for a while, which is currently on hiatus, that was a, there was a reason why that wasn't sort of a straight interview podcast. You know, I preferred doing all the interviews and then, oh, now I've got my thing that I can kind of put together in the way that I want it. Um, so, yeah, I admire folks that can that can do great interviews. And there, there's a reason I do so few and to whatever extent people enjoy this one. I feel, feel like the number one reason is I just I never solicit guests because I feel like this only works if it's someone who. I really want to talk to you. And then if I really want to talk to them, people can sort of feel that. So sometimes I'll, I mean, you, you get your version of, you know, you live your version of this and we're about to talk about it, but the, you know, the email of like, hi, I represent um, Joseph Greenwald, the leading data analyst. He has bought and sold like all this shit. I'm like, I have no interest in talking to this person. I'm sure he's very <laughs> right. successful. There's just no fucking way. Um, right. So, so to that point, you know, my version of that is a few emails a month. Let's talk about your life, which is, well, let me let me paint a picture of how I'm imagining it. And you tell me how right or wrong I am. I'm imagining Tim Nudd, you wake up, you put the coffee on, the sun's coming up, and then you kind of drift over to the computer, you flip on the email, maybe a little reluctantly, because you just it's you know you're about to be uh <laughs> splashed in the face with a fire hose. Mm-hmm. And on any given day, it's gonna be, you know, anywhere from dozens to hundreds of emails from agency PR people who are ostensibly begging for your attention. Um for work and announcements that probably range from like legitimately interesting and exhilarating and, you know, sort of like, man, this will change the industry to every day. You must see things that are just absurd, 
and incoherent. Um, and then you just kind of spend the day plowing through the implications of whatever that day's particular mix may hold. How accurate is that? It's pretty accurate. I mean, yeah, I get a, I get a lot of email. I feel bad complaining about how busy I am and the emails that I get because I feel like everyone I know is kind of underwater all the time. But yeah, I feel uh, I do feel inundated pretty much all the time. I, and it's for me, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who likes Inbox Zero. You know, I'm like the I'm not oh, I'm no. the guy who gets stressed Poor out bastard. if I'm not if I'm not responding to emails. I'm like, and I know, you know, I think right now I'm at like 400 and something. Which is it's, it's actually fairly bad because cans coming up and I just haven't had a chance to look through a lot of them. But yeah, I hate not replying to people. I know you know it, it feels rude to me to not reply to people. Um, but yeah, there's a mix. I mean, I try my best to 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 tell folks when it's way off. Like, hey, please don't send me something like this. Like, this isn't really what we cover. And that goes, you know, in, anything that has expert available in the subject line, like you can filter that immediately into, you know, a, a, a junk box. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard. Like part of the job is I wish there were an easier way. You know, I wish there were. And we've discussed different ways of trying to get the industry to pitch and pitch us in a different way. But it's it's just hard because everyone everyone likes using email and and it's frustrating because I know that in those emails, you know, um, there is great stuff. And so it's carving out the time to just even just look at all the work that gets sent. And I, I certainly don't look at all the work. Um, I can, you know, I have to sort of prioritize, I have to say, well, this doesn't seem on its surface, this doesn't even seem very good. So I'm not going to spend the minute watching it, which I know I, you know, listen, frankly, I know there's a few things I miss here and there, but I got to have a system because I got to get through it all. And then I have to have time to actually sit down and write, you know, and if I spend a, an hour writing a story, you know, I will look up and there'll be 15 more. So yeah, it's uh, it is a fire hose. I mean, I shouldn't complain about it because people, you know, want to engage with us. It what's, it's what makes our brand strong and it, what, it, you know, what, what makes our business what it is. But, um, but yeah, on a day-to-day -day basis, it's, it's logistically challenging for sure. <laughs> I've never thought of it this way, but essentially what you're doing is what I say no to six out of seven times each year, which is your, for this very reason, which is you're, you're basically judging, um, an ad show. You're basically judging a, like a, like an, like, like an ad, like an ad show every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and by the way, what's true for you on a daily basis, true for me when I'm judging shows, which is, yeah, you, you know, you're responsible for all of these entries. And you can just start to feel in the reading of the first few sentences or in the first 10 seconds of the video, like, I, I already know that this one's not moving forward. And so I don't want to yeah. shortchange the person who worked really hard on this, but I also, I can't do this all day. Um, but, you, but you said, you know, I, I already know this one won't be very good. And, I mean, maybe an unfair question, but what is good? Is it a, you know, is it, is it hair standing up on your arms? Is it something where it, it, you know, you've done this long enough that you know what your readers want to see or what the, the patterns of good work are. I mean, there's a, there's a subjective element and an objective element from the rep reporter's perspective. And maybe talk a little bit about how you balance those two. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, yes, a lot of it is just my personal taste. I mean, what is good? I, I think it's just anything that makes you feel a connection or some, you know, it feels like it jumps out at you in some way. And like, that's hard to define. It can be, it can be based on all sorts of things. It doesn't have to be production values. It doesn't have to necessarily be something funny or something 
beautiful or something well-designed or it could be anything. Honestly, that's what makes it tricky. You know, um, we do, I think, fall into patterns where, you know, we expect certain agencies to do a certain quality of work or certain brands that we know do really good work. Naturally, when you see that person pop up in your email, you know, like if Apple sends you something new, you're like, well, that's probably going to be decent. So there's shorthands like that. But beyond that, I mean, I think I, I do try to spend, you know, some, some seconds with a with a new spot. But often, yeah, often I just feel like, and it's not even necessarily the execution. It's just sometimes it's like I'm looking for just an interesting idea. And that can, oftentimes that can be distilled into a headline. You know, I think a subject line of an email, like what's what's unique or different about this or why is this interesting versus, you know, a lot of PR folks that I work with. And, and by the way, PR folks are great. Like I, I know they have a hard job and I, I have great relationships with many of them. Um, but I think distilling for me, uh, and it would be a good exercise anyway, but just distilling what's unique or, or, or special about a campaign in a subject line of an email would, should, would be a great exercise for all PR people. Cause that would like really help me. You know, versus like this is a new uh, here's new work from this from this client or this agency, which is usually what the subject line is, versus like just something about why it's different, why we should cover it, you know. And a few PR people I know put you know they put imagery right embed it right in the email, which is super helpful. Um, I can't tell you how many people still you know attach PDFs or just like the process is is overwhelming to me sometimes of like getting to see the work. You download know. this Dropbox. I mean, download this two gigabyte file, literally. Right. And, you know, I, I have finally have fiber so I can deal with that stuff. But um, what is good? I don't know. I don't know what's good. I just, well, I know it when I see it, it's that sort of thing. Um, and uh, certainly some markers along the way, people that I know in the business that do good work, agencies I know generally do good work. Uh, that helps a lot. Um, but, you know, we are sort of searching for folks that haven't, you know, had, had their time in the spotlight as well. Like we're looking for work that from unexpected places, both geographically and, you know, agency size and, and all that stuff. So it's, it's a mix. I think, you know, we do our best in a given day to cover 15 or 20 things. And um, I'm sure there's things that slip through the crack, much to the dismay of the folks emailing me. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, it is my personal taste, I guess. Uh, combined with some shortcuts uh, of stuff I've I've seen work in the past. I love that you admit that because I suspected that was the answer, but I wasn't sure that you'd be comfortable saying it. And and the truth of it is, you know, your personal taste is not that different than it's what I tell um, my colleagues. It's you know when age, when brands hire an agency, you know, so much of what they're hiring us for is our taste. You know, our sensibility. You go to different agencies for different tastes and sensibilities. Um, and so when someone would push back and say, well, if it's your taste, then, you know, who are you to be the arbiter of what's good? The answer is like, well, I'm the guy who's been doing this for 20 years. And my personal taste seems to express itself as, you know, a viable publication that seems interesting to our readers. And until until you're not delivering on that part of it, then your taste is sufficient. And then, and then the excuse me, the other part that you said that reminded me of kind of what we do is, you know, distilling ideas into a headline. And I'm sure you know, you know, the sort of technique of writing ideas as headlines and press releases that, 
it really originated uh, when I was at Crispin Porter. It was really a, an affect of Alex Bogusky. And then all of us there went on to become creative directors and ECDs at CCOs at all these other agencies. And we just, we brought that technique with us. And now it is, you know, the preferred technique of creative agencies because it works. Yeah. And so, you know, it's incredibly fulfilling to write an idea in a Word document, you know, as a headline. And then, you know, Tim Nudd basically writes the same headline in a, in a legitimate article six months later. But it's just interesting with the ways that you're describing your job have overlaps. It's very similar. Yeah, we're market, over- yeah, we're marketing our stories yeah. in the way that, you, you know, that campaigns are, are you know, our headline writing. It's funny. I mean, and, and what I find interesting, though, is in addition to what you're talking about, I think it's interesting what we cover, whether like when we get back to the question of what is good versus what do our readers want to read? I think one interesting thing that's changed is like the subscription model that AdAge has now and that AdWeek also has. You're no longer writing sort of for a mass audience. You're writing for the industry, you know? And right. so it's it's funny, just a good example this week. Um, I wrote about, I don't know if you've followed the show Vanderpump Rules. It's, uh, I don't, but I know that I would like it very much. Some, it's it's like, there's certain drugs I don't do because I know that I would like them. I don't watch that <laughs> show because I know that I would like it. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a very popular show. They had a very popular most recent season. And yeah. Ariana, who is the woman who was um, sort of not treated very well by her by her longtime boyfriend in this episode, she's she's got all these brand deals now. So I wrote a story about her Duracell spot and the Duracell spot is from, it's from Vayner. It's fine. It's not going to win any awards, but you know, I, I just know that this show is popular. And that's an example of me sort of in the old model catering to like, Oh, what's going to get clicks so that we can actually get the ad impressions so that we can pay off the sponsors that way versus, you know, the ad age model now, which is those, those page views are essentially useless. Uh, not completely useless, but we're 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 really much more focused on what is the industry engaging with versus what you know. But occasionally, you know, I fall back into that, like, oh well, what's the what's the you know the ad week approach when I was there ten years ago, covering creativity, which is like, what is the 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 most number of page views I can get, you know, when when there's no paywall, and we were doing you know a hundred thousand views on some stories, you know, in, in a given week. So it's interesting. I mean, it's nice in a way to focus on what the industry really needs because it feels more like a business approach, a business, what a business publication should be doing. But, you know, the evolution of digital media in this way, and I know people hate the paywall. I get that. But, you know, it's sort of how we. It's a trade-off. It's the, it's the, you just, you know, you just verbalize it, which is the trade-off is, of course, you want to write compelling pieces, um, but you don't want to be rewarded for writing things that are salacious bordering on misleading to generate clicks are all you know um engaging in that sort of attention economy thing you know i remember one time i was at Adweek and we were chasing clicks one week and it was you know i was like way behind on my page views for the week and i remember it was the week that instagram released their new logo I was like, I'm just going to do a piece like trashing the new Instagram logo because I know it's going to get like half a million views. <laughs> and sure enough. <laughs> yeah. Re- reporting the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, it does beg the question if, you know, given the similarities, would Tim Nudd be a good ECD? Yeah. I thought, you know, I've wondered that myself. I mean, I, I, on the plus side, I think I, you know, 
I, I bring an, a, a pretty good knowledge of what the last 25 years in the business have produced in terms of creativity. But, you know, I just, I, I love being a journalist. I love, you know, writing about all, all these different types of campaigns and things. I don't, I don't know if I'd trust myself to, to pick between concepts. Honestly, I've never been put in that position. I don't know what that's like, really. Um, I do think you probably have to come up in that world and, and sort of be on the other side. Uh, I feel like, you know, the, the ship has sailed of me joining the industry as a copywriter, probably, you know, um, but yeah, I think, I don't know how the skill sets would translate really, you know, I really enjoy just sort of sitting down and, and writing 500 words or, or whatever it is um, on, on a campaign and, and figuring out the strategy and, and, and the expression of the strategy. I think that's, to me, that's, you know, I really enjoy that. When you're trying to write 500 words, do you finish your, your sort of final sentence, then go up to the word count tool and see how close you get and try to get it into like a single digit thing? Do you take, do you take joy in that? I don't do that actually. No, that's interesting. <laughs> I would think that would be a game I would play if I was relegated to, to, to specific word count. Um, so, you know, you hinted at this a little bit, which is, you know, the effect of reputation on coverage. I, I, I enjoyed the benefits of it when I was at the sort of the height of Crispin Porter. I know as a judge, I, um, I do it when, you know, work comes through and I, and I, before I hit play on the case study, I know it's from Droga five or I know it's from, you know, mischief. And, and so I'm sort of, uh, predisp uh, predisposed to liking it before I watch it because I like them generally. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, you do that because it's, a, you have to do that because it's efficient. Um, and frankly, cause our industry wants to know the work coming out of the, the, the most famous agencies or, you know, or the most, kind of newsworthy agencies of our time. Um, but, but that balance between, you know, covering maybe somewhat average work from a great agency versus covering something that feels like, man, this feels like something I haven't seen before, but I've never heard of the people who are sending it to me. Yeah. I mean, I, it is a, a very useful shorthand to know which agencies are generally doing good work. Right. Because you know, you can count on it. And, but you know, th there is a certain joy in finding great work coming from new places. Like, absolutely, no doubt. I think that's even, you know, in many ways, maybe more fulfilling. Um, but the fact is, there's, you know, 15, 20 brands in the world, that everybody wants to see what they're saying, you know, everybody automatically wants to see the industry wants to see everyone else wants to see what they're doing. So it would be sort of foolish to ignore that. I mean, even if, you know, and we don't write about every Nike commercial. I'm not saying that we automatically write about these things. Um, but there is a built-in interest industry and beyond that just makes sense for us to be in that conversation. Um, but I love finding stuff from unexpected places. You know, I remember the first, the, this is a long time ago, but the first work I ever saw from Johannes Leonardo I was like, what is this? Like, what, who are these guys? You know, and it's, it's awesome. You know, every agency starts somewhere. Like you think about what Droga did, you know, with the, with the Mark Echo stuff, like there's a first or first couple of years for all these uh, amazing agencies where they're, you know, <coughs> majority, <coughs> majority. <coughs> exactly. Um, if only I could think of an example. <laughs> uh, but so does that make it hard? I would think it would be hard to send an email back 
on occasion, probably incredibly infrequently, to the likes of a Nike, a mischief PR person, a Droga 5 PR person saying, you know I love you, but this work, this time just doesn't meet the standard. <laughs> I think I, the, the, those places that you mentioned, I don't think they're going to care that much if I skip a story or two. Right. Um, they, they're on a roll already. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, you do have to stay on your on your game, though. Like, there's certain agencies, I, I won't name names, that were really, really doing great work five years ago, and they're not doing such great work now. So it's not a sure thing. You know, it's not a, a given that that you're going to maintain that level. So it's nice for us to to monitor agencies over a period of years and just see how the creative product evolves. And it's interesting when when top leaders leave and 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 places turn over and and then the new guard sort of comes in and tries to uphold a tradition. Like it doesn't always work. And uh, you know, I, like look at what Jerry Graff's been through with with his. You I was know, just thinking about. I was just thinking about him as you were saying this. Yeah. I mean, amazing. Like amazing career at big agencies. Then you know has this wonderful ride at Barton, and then that sort of implodes, and then comes back strong with Slap. And it's just a. Those types of journeys are 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 amazing to watch. You know, nobody knew. Obviously, Jerry has his and Maxi too have their sort of history. And so when Slap started, we were very interested in what was what that was going to be like. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a great business to cover. You know, individual evolutions and agency evolutions. And and yes, like I think I think Mischief has earned the uh you, you know the right to assume we'll cover their work you know yeah. they've, they've done enough good stuff to to warrant that and but you know we're we're completely open open-minded ge- geographically in terms of business size any cool idea that feels fresh to me and breakthrough like i want to write about it my first claim to fame was whopper freak out i love doing hidden camera shit i love yeah. watching hidden camera shit uh, it's now super derivative to the point it's it's almost impossible to do it in, a, in an original way. Mm-hmm. Um, for you personally, what is the sort of idea archetype that you see and go, ah, Jesus, another one of these? I, is, will the industry ever stop making these? Oh, man, it's funny you should say that. What did you think of the, uh, well, this wasn't really hidden camera. Well, yeah, I guess it was. The, the, the Duncan thing was on the Super Bowl with Ben Affleck. What did you think of that one? What I thought about that is what I thought about the last three years of Super Bowl ads generally. Mm-hmm. And I guess this just speaks to my sensibility, which is I think there's so so much unfair criticism of Super Bowl ads because it's it's fun to shit on things that took a lot of time and energy and cost to make. And mm-hmm. um, like I loved it. You know, I loved it. I wish I, I made it. You know, and there was a bunch of there's a bunch of things over the past few years that I loved and I wished I made, and I just listened to people in our industry go like, "Oh my God, Super Bowl's d- ruined. There's no more ideas." And you go like, mm-hmm. "I don't know." I so I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this is probably a stale complaint at this point, but you know, I, I do feel like the a lot of the purpose stuff. You know, and we've been we've been digging through a lot of this work ahead of Can, of course, is that the industry has been obsessed. With winning awards and 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 obsessed with using purpose to get there, and I've gotten a number of pitches over the last month or two where it just doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel, you know, it feels like a awards bait. I mean, some ideas are just clearly not scalable. To me, you know, and I think I, I do think that there's 
you know, if the tide is turning a bit, you know, people do want to hear big brands doing things versus a brand no one's ever heard of where an agency comes up with the idea and goes and finds the brand so that they can create this case so they can win a lion or whatever. So that, you know, that purpose thing, and it's, it's hard because some of that stuff is, is amazing. So you, you're in a position of sort of trying to separate, you know, the stuff that's really cynical from the stuff that's real. And that's, you know, that's a challenge. Um, but yeah, and I, I love, you know, and I think a lot of people, I've been hearing this in jury rooms too, which is like, let's, let's, let's reward sort of entertainment and, and big brands doing fun things, not necessarily, it doesn't have to all be so heartfelt. And so sort of let's save the world as an industry, which honestly, always to a degree felt a little self-serving anyway, which is like, oh, well, we're not just advertisers. We're, we're actually more important than that. Um, so that's been an interesting dynamic. I guess that's been the one that's frustrated me sort of most recently. If you do a job long enough, you know, your friend circle is going to be populated with the people at the job. And that's certainly true for me. 20 years in advertising, all my friends are advertising people. And, um, you know, for you, you know, I know you've developed certainly plenty of personal relationships outside of the reporter circle with, you know, the, the people and the agencies that you cover. Um, do you feel like you need to keep any distance from the subjects that you cover? Is it okay to, you know, what, 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 how do you think about those relationships or is it any different than the rest of us? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it is a small industry, right? I think two things are helpful for me. I am sort of a, a introvert. I don't love going to industry events and parties and can brings me a bit of anxiety. So I'm also in Maine, so I'm not available to hang out and go to dinner in New York very often. <laughs> so, I mean, that said, yeah, I'm friendly with people in, in the business, um, but I, I don't feel like it, it compromises, you know, really anything. When it, when it comes down to it, we, you know, we're we're there. You know, we both serve a role in the industry, and I think it, my role is pretty clear. And when you know, when we are dealing with a serious situation with 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 a story. Um, I think they, they know where I'm coming from, you know, I mean, I cover, you know, I cover the creative side, so I'm not in the position as right. often as maybe some of our reporters are where they're really trying to understand why somebody was fired or, you know, why a certain account went, went sideways, you know, the, the, the business can get pretty difficult, uh, in, in those, uh, on that side of the reporting. So I don't do a ton of that work. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say I really have a ton of like, personal friends in, in the industry. I mean, I, I love seeing people. I love, you know, I do love sort of catching up with folks. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, it's a, it's a business to me primarily. So I don't, so we shouldn't uh, get, we shouldn't get an apartment together. Well, we've talked about this a few times. No, I don't <laughs> think that's a good idea. <laughs> um, you know, you brought it up and I know it's, it's not exactly kind of what you deal in, but um, you know, vindictiveness in media and, you, you, you know, the, the, the reporter wields a power that you're aware of, which is, you know, the, a great coverage of an agency is going to generate, you know, potential business. Um, you know, the reporting of the loss of an account, you know, is, is going to generate some negative momentum for that company that's beyond your control, even if all you're trying to do is do your job as, the, as a reporter. You know, I couldn't help but notice a recent publication, not yours did a series of stories about an agency, uh, none I've been affiliated with. And the coverage seemed to me to be sort of unnecessarily 
negative to the point mm-hmm. that that I, as someone who's just followed the industry and read a lot of these stories um, over the years, felt like the writer was exercising something personal. Hmm. Does that shit happen or am I imagining it? You know, I've known reporters like that over the years for sure. Um, I, I think in other markets it happens more. In fact, I would even point to the UK market where the the ad tr- the ad press there has known has been known for a long time. I wouldn't say so much now, but it has it was known historically as sort of adversarial to the industry. And you know, but I, I I'm torn because I think. It's, you know, the, the relationship should be to a degree adversarial. You know, it shouldn't be all like, let's celebrate everything. Everything's awesome. Like, no, there should be, you know, some, some, some difficult stories written if, if things are going sideways, you know, and, and I think, uh, I think good reporters know the difference. I don't think that, that, that there's any place for, you know, pure vindictiveness in reporting. I think you have to, you have to be true to what the facts are, but, um, but yeah, I think there's, you know, there, there's been a certain sea change, I guess, over the last 10 years, you know, like post Gawker or whatever, like the rise of BuzzFeed and the decline of Gawker was sort of emblematic to me of like this sort of positivity, right? You're embracing, you know, you, you, you want to be positive. Snark is out. Positivity is in. And, and to a degree, all the ad trades like to celebrate good work. So that's sort of built in. Um, but yeah, I mean, if there's something, you know, if there's controversy or there's something happening in the industry that, that, you know, requires a more serious approach and, and even some criticism, I think that's absolutely what we should be doing. Um, but yeah, certain reporters, you know, you see it across mainstream media as well. In the, in the politics of the situations that they're reporting on. Um, yeah, you know, luckily, you know, I think a lot of what I do, you know, we used to we used to write negative reviews of of ads sometimes when we didn't like them. And to me that, you know, in retrospect that seems kind of petty like well, if you don't like it, just ignore it kind of kind of vibe. Pre-Twitter, though, pre-Twitter there there may have been a need for that. Now there's no there's no need for that now. <laughs> right. I mean, I will say, you know, I've written a few I've panned a few big ads in my career which I think was important to do. You know, like when Facebook put out the chairs ad or whatever, like there's certain when, when enormous companies make really terrible anthems, like you should you should say something about that. Right. Um, but generally, you know, the, the vibe these days is sort of let's kind of sidestep. I mean, we've, we've got so much good stuff to focus on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think the, the role of the press is to keep the business honest in many ways. And that sometimes isn't the most doesn't lead to the most pleasant stories for everybody. After over a decade at Adweek, you're now the creativity editor at Ad Age. As an outsider, it feels like this sort of never-ending competition for scoops. Um, um, I'm curious what, what is the what is the real relationship between these two publications? Is it respect? Is there is there any contempt? How competitive is it? Um, how maybe has it changed over the past decade or so? Well, it's interesting. I, I don't know. I, I don't think I would have ever jumped straight from Adweek to Ad Age. I, I was at Cl- uh, the Clio Awards yeah. for five years there in between where, you know, that was a whole journey of starting a new product and, you know, seeing what the startup feel was like. And I, you know, 
hat tip to Nicole. She's awesome. And, and she let me do that and gave me a lot of freedom to do that. And that was really fun. I mean, of course we're competitors. Yeah. I mean, but you wouldn't have jumped because it would have felt like you were betraying your yeah, colleagues. Yeah. It would be like a Vader move, you know, like it would be <laughs> terrible. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like there's not a lot of interaction between, I mean, I, I have friends still at Adweek that I, that I talk to occasionally. Um, there's a friendly competitiveness, I guess, but yeah, we are chasing the stories and we're, we're disappointed when they get something that we don't get and, you know, vice versa. Um, you know, I think the industry is, is healthier when you have strong rivalries in the press, you know, I think that it keeps us all on our toes and, and, uh, you know, I have a lot of fond memories of, of that place. Um, we don't cross paths very often, particularly, with a friend at Adweek, uh, who I'll see uh, can next week. So it's, you know, I think, uh, the natural inclination is to be, you know, not, not, ne not rivals in a negative way where you're, you know, where you, you hate the other side or anything like that. You know, I, I think, you know, a competitiveness is good. Um, I think it's interesting to see, you know, I know they've, Adweek has been having some rough times lately and I'm, you know, I'm sorry to see that. I hope they bounce back. Um, and it's, you know, for me right now, it's, uh, it's great to be at ad age. I feel like it's an ascendant brand. I feel like we're, we're, you know, there's a lot of talented and, and really nice and, and, and great people at the brand. And so, you know, I, I, I a lot of the folks here were here when I was at Adweek and I didn't know them very well. And, uh, it's, you know, it's nice to sort of see, it's nice to not hate them anymore. There are people you. too. Yeah. I mean, there are people too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is there any discernible difference in company culture that feels like it has um, been true since the beginning? Or is it kind of like both companies, you think about them in chapters and at any given moment, they're, whatever the collection of people there are, that's the company of the, that's the, uh, that's the sort of the culture of the company. Well, I don't know. I don't know how much I can say about um, AdAge is owned by Crane Communications, which has been a, a family business for 100 years. Adweek has gone through so many different owners, you know, from from 97 when I joined until today. Who knows how many owners they've had, like eight or nine owners. They were owned by Nielsen for a while. Right. There was also, you know, we went through the Michael Wolf era when I was there, when he was the editor for a while. I mean, there's been so much, like, turnover and difficulties with ownership at Adweek for so long. I mean, I can't remember you know, this, the number of rounds of layoffs that we had when I was there and cutting to the bone. And so, you know, that, that's their culture is they're used to complete uncertainty, you know, and I, I hope that they are, are able to stabilize. We have a certain amount of stability just through Crane and, and there's much less churn in terms of uh, the editorships uh, at AdAge. So it feels great. I mean, I've only been here for five months, but I feel like I've been here much longer because it's a real, it's a great environment. Um, yeah, I mean, they're quite different, but, but editorially, I think we're, we're, you know, we're, we've got the same mission essentially, which is to, you know, try to explain this business and, and give, you know, give the folks that, that helping it some inspiration and some, you know, some, uh, some direction for where it's heading. So. We're, we're competitors in that sense. I don't think there's, you know, there's not animosity really. When I see them in Cannes, we'll have a good laugh, I'm sure. Muse was a was a worthy entrepreneurial endeavor, but I feel like 
you're where you're supposed to be. You're sort of a name that I've known since I was an intern and a junior copywriter. And it's sort of nice to see you back at one of the two kind of, you know, uh, planets. Um, oh, well, thanks. I mean, what's great for me is like just being in a larger group of journalists again, all kind of headed in the same direction. Yeah. You know, because at Muse, I mean, Dave is great. Angela is great. We were a very small team, though. And just trying to, you know, trying to cover the business with a, a team of three or four is like impossible. Like when you have 20 reporters, you know, you feel like you can actually credibly sort of cover a lot of what's going on in the industry. So, and, you know, we have our morning meetings and it's just great to to connect with everybody and and talk journalist to journalist. And, you know, it's it's wonderful. Um not that the award, you know, the awards business is is interesting too, and it was an interesting sort of side tour. And I I think the Muse brand will hopefully continue to thrive. I know I know Nicole wants it too, and Dave's still there. So, um, but yeah, it's uh, thank you for saying that. It feels great to be here. Um, in addition to Tagline, which is an incredible podcast that's just sort of very distinctive, and I recommend anyone who's gotten this far into this interview, you will definitely like Tagline if you don't know it already. But you also did another limited podcast series, which I really enjoyed. It must have been four or five years ago. It's definitely pre-pandemic. Uh, I think it was called I'm Telling You for the Last Time. And it was a multi-part series where you went one-on-one with Lee Clow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was awesome. And it's this time capsule of one of our, you know, our, our industry's all-time greats. Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I'm I'm super thankful to Lee for that because I had just left Adweek and I don't even think Muse had launched yet or maybe it had just launched. And he invited me to come out to LA and hang with him at his house and just and just talk about his career, which, you know, I mean, he's always been quite open with me and he's such a nice, you know, uh, decent person. Um, yeah, that was an interesting project. You know, the idea was you know, to gather questions to ask him, I think we had 50 questions in the end. And we did a couple days of recording. And I mean, he's got such a he lives in such a wonderful place, like overlooking the Pacific, and we were just hanging out and he's got like, you know, eight dogs, and they were all sort of we were, (laughs) we had a sound team in there trying to keep the dogs quiet. And he's like, Oh, forget about the light, let the dogs be part of this. And, you know, but but just being able to, you know, I've always been sort of fascinated by the history of advertising generally. And just, you know, he's got stories going back to the sixties of kind of, you know, meeting Jay and, and getting into that agency. And, and I mean, what a career he's had. And I think he's actually um, bringing a new film to can about the 50 year, uh, 50 years of, of Shia, which will be really interesting to see too. Um, but yeah, just being able to, and we've, I've interviewed him, you know, many times and every, you know, every time I do, he's gracious and, and gives all of his time and that series turned out to be interesting it's you know looking back i mean shyat sort of creative directed that series I, I may have done it a little differently if i'd just been able to interview him and then take the files and do my version mm-hmm. uh, so i was sort of a i guess a, a hired interviewer in many ways not that that was a bad thing um, but it was you know what a what a treat to be able to sit down with one of the legends of the business and just ask him 50 different questions. I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of a dream come true in many ways. Well, you know, I, I keep a list of dream guests, um, in a memo on my phone and Lee was obviously high up on that list. And just when I saw the title of the podcast, I'm mm-hmm. telling you for the last time, I remember seeing it in my car and just mm-hmm. taking it personally. I just saw it and I was like, ah, oh, fuck, I just deleted <laughs> the deleted the name from the memo. He's pretty explicit here that he's not doing any more of these. I don't know if you call, you should call him. I think he would, he would come on the show. Um, 
a bit of a nebulous question, but you know, you've, you've, you know, you've been seeing the best of what this industry has to offer and has had to produce for the past, you know, 25 ish years. Uh, mm-hmm. What's the best campaign you ever covered? And, and you, you decide the criteria for what best means. Yeah, well, it's funny, You've, you mentioned tagline, which was kind of a, you know, my attempt to go a little deeper, you know, one of the things that's been difficult to balance for me over the years has been like, covering daily work, new stuff that's coming out today, try to get as try to cover as much of that as I can, but then try to go deeper on things too, like spend more time thinking about one thing. And so that's sort of what tagline was, was this idea of like, well, let's try to do like a 30 for 30 on advertising, you know, like go back to classic campaigns and, and one that I always, in fact, the idea started with this campaign, uh, which was the Johnny Walker, Robert Carlyle film that BBH London did in 09. I, I love this work so much. I don't know why. I think I'm just obsessed with like the craft of it. Like, you know, they hired, you know, George Richmond to be the DP who was, you know, he was a camera operator on Baron's Children of Men and like the whole idea of a single take. And Jamie Raffin was such an interesting director. And Justin Moore, who was the writer, was such a unique talent. Kate Owen, who edited it. Um, Ruben Mercadal, who's now at Droga, who was the, who was the producer. And just the story behind it, I mean, going up to the Scottish Highlands and they were dealing with rain and they were dealing with bugs and just to create this. And of course, Robert Carlyle, like having him, you know, give this five minute monologue over, you know, while walking, uh, they're having to film him in reverse. I mean, it's just the whole production of it was weird. And, and the concept of just bringing to life the About Us page on the website, the history, the brand history, which is usually so boring that can't imagine that you know you could bring it to life in such a way that would be so compelling and so that was that particular film was the inspiration for tagline to begin with and uh, as i got deeper into tagline i realized how many other campaigns you know i loved and i wanted to find out more about you know like the skittles work that jerry and company started 20 years ago like you know i'm a mac i'm a pc you know, the like Droga's Michael Phelps ad, like there's so many of them got milk, you know, and yeah, I, each one of them is, is, is unique for its own reasons. But I think, yeah, the Johnny Walker film to me, I used to give a presentation where at the, at the very end, I would just show that as an example of everything I thought was good <laughs> in the right. business. So I just thought it was a kind of a marvel of, of concept it was also just supposed to be an internal brand film. It's for the for the sales team at Diageo. Like, it was such an interesting example of like how a lame assignment or a seemingly lame assignment could end up in being such a cool thing in the end. So, like all facets of that, I think, are that film is just special in every way and almost every discipline that went into it. Uh, and and yeah, I've I struggled to to think of one that that kind of tops that. Yeah. When I think about that, that, um, campaign, it's, you know, I'm reminded that 99, 97% of advertising is essentially litter that we're trying to avoid. Hmm. And so all the more impressive when something, you know, can move you like a great piece of music or a great painting or a great film. And it is a great film, you know, like the best of advertising reminds you that, you know, a film can be 
two hours or it can be two minutes, but you know, the same three act structure and the same attention to detail and the same, you know, meticulous artistry are applied. And, you know, when, when an ad moves you in that way, um, mm-hmm. it's a high that you chase, you know, it's almost yeah. sounds like when, you know, when you open that inbox and take a sort of sigh and go, here we go. Like, you know, what you're really hoping happens and it maybe happens a couple times a year, if you're lucky as you feel moved in that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, you know, I tried for weeks to get Carlisle to talk to me about that and he, he, he didn't in the end, which was kind of frustrating, but he did reply to the, to my tweet about it eventually when they, when the episode rolled out. So I'll, I, I called that a win in the end. So before we get to our final three questions, uh, I did want to say, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the at age small agency awards here in a couple of weeks here in July. Um, it's a funny in Atlanta. A, in Atlanta, uh, thank you for accommodating me. I assume that's that was your decision making process. But you know that's a that's an interesting show because it's one that you know, I spent my life working at giant agencies. You know, most recently at McCann World Group. And when you're at these big places, you know, a lot of us don't pay as much attention to the small agency awards. And then you know you 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 get into this world, and it's actually this really beautiful community. And you have all of these entrepreneurs who started companies who feel. Yeah, there's a friendly competition, but there's a real, you know, there's a real camaraderie and, um, you know, a real sense of connection with people who are going through maybe some of the same things and um, and can can help each other out and can lift each other up and can give each other advice. And I've certainly been the beneficiary of a lot of that. So, uh, you know, I, this is your first year being involved in it as well. Tell me a little bit about the, the 2023 Small Agency Awards, your, your role in it and, and what you're looking forward to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we talked a little bit about Adweek versus AdAge. When I was at Adweek, I was I was envious of the small agency awards. I thought that was a really cool idea. And now being over here at AdAge, it's it's been great to I've helped judge the awards this year. So I went through all the entries or not all the entries. We we sort of split them up. But um, but yeah, I was able to sort of contribute to that conversation about who who should be winning. And yeah, it's just a it seems, you know, this is my first rodeo with it, but it seems like a really cool. Everyone's t- everyone tells me it's like the coolest event that we have, and um, yeah, the tickets are on sale now for the end of July. The show is at the end of July in in, uh, in down in Atlanta, and yeah, we recognize a bunch of different uh, agencies as well as you know a bunch of different campaigns and things like that. So uh, it should be really fun, and we'd love to see as many folks there as we can. All right, Tim. The final three questions. Are you ready, sir? I'm ready. Okay. First question. What is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? Maybe uh, we, we focus this, you know, even more intently on uh, words or phrase of advertising jargon that find their way into the press releases from agencies <laughs> that you, that you spend your, your days on. Yeah. Um, for me, it's a tie between think outside the box and cut through the clutter, which yeah, if, if you're trying to describe something that actually does those things, don't don't use those cliched words to do that. They do show up a lot. It's it's amazing that people still say those things. Um, yeah, those those bother me. Question number two. I'm adapting the 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 original question is typically what is the uh, the most memorably fucked up response to a creative director that they've gotten in a client meeting. We'll adapt it for you to. What is the most memorably fucked up response you got from an editor in response to a story you were attempting to pitch? Can I adapt your adaptation? Please. Into the most memorable response I ever got from a reader. Oh, hell yeah. To, to something I wrote. So this was pre, this was honestly pre-internet. This was like 
well, it wasn't pre-internet, but it was it was around 2000, 2001. And I wrote a I wrote a column for Adweek. Uh, it was about it's not it's not worth going trying to find this thing, by the way, but it was about like the value of of the middle versus the extremes. Anyway, it was a weird thing to be writing about. This is when we we rarely got emails, but we actually got a physical letter to the editor. Uh, and it, had, it was two words and it said nice comb over. Mm. And it was re- in, re- in reference to my author headshot. And someone took the time to send a letter criticizing my my haircut uh after an ad column that i wrote and uh, yes uh, that was that was to me the definition of fucked up listen i don't know if rogaine or some product gets credit but i'm looking at you right now and your hairline looks damn strong <laughs> it was a it, it was a you can tell that guy to fuck shoot. all the way off yeah all right <laughs> yeah um and the final question another adapted one it's called the one that got away I ask agency folks, what's that one beloved idea you never made, but you still think about often? I guess for you, maybe it's what is a story or an angle or a scoop or an interview that might be the one that got away? You take it wherever you want. It's an interview. It's that I never got to talk to Cliff Freeman in my career. And I had his phone number over the last couple of years. And I was like, I was a little intimidated. I'm like, I didn't realize he was 80 years old when he passed away, but I never called him. And I regret that because uh, I am in the early stages of working on a tagline episode about Little Caesars and Cliff, unfortunately, will not be in it. Um, But uh, yeah, that's the one that got away. Um, The one guy that I wish I had interviewed and didn't. I tried three or four times through people who knew him uh, about four or five years ago and uh, just could not get a response. Yeah. I mean, okay, you know, I probably wouldn't have either. Yeah. For the young bucks, you know, before there was a. A Dan Wyden or a David Drogo or an Alex Bogusky, there was, you know, there was Cliff Freeman. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a good one. Well, Tim, as I said earlier in the interview, man, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, uh, excited for this next chapter for you. Um, you know, again, you, you, you've been, you know, an integral part of this industry since well before I started in it. And, um, uh, and you move our industry forward. And, and this just, this feels like the right thing at the right time. And, and so, uh, you know, all of us who love this industry are, are really happy for you and uh, look forward to seeing you in Atlanta in a few weeks. Definitely. That's really nice of you to say. And it's great to be on the show. Thanks, Omid. All right, man. See you soon. Take care. All right. Thanks so much to Tim Nudd for a great conversation. Hey, thank you as always to my production partners in this venture, Beacon Street Studios. And as always, folks, if you're liking the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, share it with a friend or colleague, and we'll be back to you with another uh, guest host edition in a few weeks. Until then, peace. Let them clap for show. Let it wrap your resistance. Make trap unknowns. Release for your heart. Speak ballads flowing.